August 30th, 2020. That was the last date that I preached out of the Book of Acts at Lettered Streets. We covered on that day Acts chapter 20. And then for the next four months, we took some detours. We explored the Book of Daniel, and then through the Advent season, we explored some of the Christmas movies that uh, were our favorites, at least in the congregation, and we discovered some of the Advent themes in those films. On this first Sunday of 2021, I want to re-engage with our sermon series throughout the Book of Acts. We're going to begin with a brief recap. Okay, so Acts begins where the Gospel of Luke ends, or more accurately, Acts and Luke sort of overlap where Luke ends and Acts begins, and they overlap at the ascension of Jesus. The resurrected Jesus is making these appearances and spending time with his disciples, and he's preparing them to carry on the mission of declaring the good news of God's kingdom breaking into our world. And the key phrase from Acts 1.8 that frames the rest of the story are these words from Jesus. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even into the remotest parts of the earth. This is not so much a command as it is a promise, which makes even this call to be witnesses good news. Jesus promises to empower his disciples with the Holy Spirit, and he says that he will be with us and that we will be his witnesses from our local communities to around the world. Sure enough, in chapter 2, we see the disciples in this upper room praying, and it happens to be the Feast of the Pentecost, and Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world that have been scattered there for, for decades and centuries, they're, they're traveling to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the festivities of Pentecost. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came upon these followers of Jesus, the men and the women, and as we'll hear later in Acts chapter 21, the girls, and we assume the boys as well. And in that moment, the disciples were empowered by the Spirit to speak in other languages so that the pilgrims from other nations who were there, they, they could understand the message about Jesus in their mother tongue, in their heart language. It was a sort of undoing of the confusion at the Tower of Babel. The, the curse over the world was beginning to break. And from that moment on, God, in the power of the Spirit, is working in and through the church to spread the, the good news of Jesus, both by, by proclaiming it and by modeling it in the church through their new communities and their acts of love and sacrifice. Acts tells us stories of the church gathering for worship, gathering for prayer, and preaching, and eating. And no one lacks any basic necessities because people make sacrifices to care for one another. Now, Peter preaches about Jesus and the power of the Spirit, and many people come to trust in Jesus. But with this advancement in the gospel, it seems every time it advances, there's resistance as well. And so Stephen, one of the first seven deacons of the church, is stoned by, by zealous members of the synagogue because he's proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And with this great persecution in Jerusalem came a new exodus of Christians who fled Jerusalem and they spread the good news of Jesus all around. So guys like Philip see uh, the Samaritans and then the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, both different people groups, different stations in life, both also despised by Jerusalemite Jewish people, 
He sees these people come to faith in Jesus. And then Peter himself is further converted when he sees the faith of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and his whole family receives the Holy Spirit when they're baptized. The more that pressure mounts against the church, the more Jesus empowers and multiplies his church. So much so that when Saul, one of the main persecutors of the church, is on a journey to arrest more Christians, Jesus encounters him personally and transforms his heart so that he would become Paul, one of the greatest church planters ever. Over three journeys through Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Greece, the Holy Spirit works in and through Paul to build a network of multicultural, multi-ethnic churches. As we pick up the story in Acts 21, we encounter Paul and his companions as they're traveling home from their third missionary journey. Now, of particular importance is the fact that Paul is certain of two realities, and these realities are revealed in Acts 19.21, Acts 20.16, and Acts 20.22. And they tell us, here are the two realities. One, that it is the Holy Spirit who is leading Paul toward Jerusalem, and two, it is the Holy Spirit who tells Paul and the others that suffering will await Paul in Jerusalem. Now, with that in mind, we turn now to Acts 21, 1 through 36. That's our text for today. And rather than me reading straight through it, we're going to take it in three sections. So if you're on Zoom worshiping with LSCC this, uh, today, uh, we're going to get to, to hear these passages read from different people in our own congregation. But if you're listening to uh, the podcast or you're re-watching this online, well, you'll be stuck with me reading the passage. So there you go. Here we go. Let's hear from Acts 21, uh, verses 1 through 14. Acts 21, 1 through 14. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And when it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we entered Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. 
So in this first section, we get a brief travel narrative. And it might seem a little odd to us who are used to 21st century travel blogs and in-flight magazine articles. Like we're used to seeing fant fantastic photos of the places that people visit and, and definitely hearing about interesting cuisine and culture. But ancient travel narratives, of which there were lots outside of the Bible, they weren't interested in the same things that we find interesting. Like, it didn't talk so much about the food that they ate as much as who they interacted with along the way. And whereas most of us don't really care to hear about someone's layover or what airline or railway they were traveling, ancient people loved to chronicle the details of the mode of transportation and where they stopped along the way. And by naming the people and places where Paul stopped, it would be easy for skeptics to follow up and simply ask the community in Rhodes or the disciples of Tyre if Paul had been there. And, and they could check with Philip and his family or the prophet Agabus to hear more about the conversations they had with Paul. One of the things I've been pondering about this passage is the way people traveled in Paul's day. Like in today's world, if you want to go somewhere, you just take your car or you make arrangements on a bus or a train or a plane or a boat, you choose your itinerary and then you secure a ticket that ensures that you will get from point A to point B on such and such a date at such and such a time. And if there are complications to your plans and they get altered or planes get delayed or whatever, you get frustrated usually, right? Especially if it's for business or you're, you've got a, a limited schedule. But in Paul's day, people traveled on freighters and merchant ships. Tra travelers were basically hitchhikers, and they were at the mercy of someone else's schedule. So in this story, Paul is on a mission from the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem where trouble was supposed to meet him. And he was on someone else's time schedule uh, in terms of how to get there. Now, I'm just thinking about how up in the air Paul's plans are, and it makes me feel restless inside. I was thinking, why does it make me feel that way? And I think for me, maybe you can resonate with this, because it just feels so out of control. Like, we like the illusion of being in control. We like, we think we do at least, to have our future planned and our schedules lined out. We, a lot of us, have meal plans for the, for the week. Uh, we might even have our career plan mapped out. And part of the modernization of the world requires, to some degree, that we plan. Uh, like, if you want to camp nowadays, especially in COVID world, like, you've got to reserve your site nine months, a year in advance, if you want to have a chance at it. But make no mistake. We are all still hitchhikers reliant on the Holy Spirit. We can't really know what the future holds. And there's a tension between the wisdom of strategy and then the wisdom of being open-handed about how our plans actually play out. We would do well to learn that wisdom of holding our plans loosely. A lot of it depends on our disposition and our culture. So if our disposition is one of kind of winging it and not having a plan, like if you can't show up on time places and you're just having a hard time knowing up and down, there's a wisdom to learning to think through what God has called you to do and called you to be and maybe how to achieve that goal. There's a wisdom there. But if your disposition is one of over planning and fear of the future, if you don't have it all locked down, then you might be tempted to play junior Holy Spirit trying to manipulate the outcomes of your life. And this travel narrative offers us an important course correction. 
Few people were as single-minded about their work as Paul. Like, this is a driven dude. He, he's all about his business and the gospel. And yet, he is open to accepting the things that he can't control, like the direction of the wind, or the schedule of the ships, or how people receive the gospel, or where God will call him next. In our ultra-mechanized world, we need help, I need help, uh, to remind ourselves of the lack of control we have so that we're not blindsided and debilitated when the unexpected breaks into our lives. And I think, to, to a large degree, that's the power of true Sabbath, where we cease producing and allow ourselves to be still or just to play. Engaging in cross-cultural experiences or spending time in the wilderness without the trappings of smartphones and electricity, those things can help us feel the visceral nature of our weakness, our lack of control, our dependence on God, on other people, and the natural world. It might be worth asking yourself, as I've been asking myself, in what or in whom do I really trust deep down? Is it my health? Is it your comfort, finances, or relationship? How might we grow in trusting Jesus rather than our illusion of control? Another related aspect of the story is the reality that following Jesus isn't always easy. I know that really comes as a shock, right? So I've already commented that Paul was led to Jerusalem by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And yet we're met with these prophecies in the passage that in the Spirit, it seems to indicate that Paul would suffer when he went to Jerusalem. And people are telling him, don't go, Paul. So what's going on here? Well, the short answer, as John Stott has put it, is that there's a difference between a prediction and a prohibition. There is a difference between a prophet revealing that suffering is waiting in Jerusalem and a prophet saying, thus says the Lord, do not go to Jerusalem. So the Spirit predicted hardship for Paul, and his loving community interpreted that prediction and begged him not to go. But Paul has made the choice to trust in Jesus. He's trusted him, and that even though the journey would be difficult, it was a journey that the Spirit was leading him toward. In this sense, we, we might think of Jesus as he was headed toward Jerusalem, knowing full well that he would be falsely convicted and executed, and yet, for the love of us and for obedience to the Father, that's exactly what he was committed to do. And I think we could admire Paul's faith and his courage in the story. And possibly we can take courage from it for ourselves. We might not face death in the next thing that we're up against, but if we are following Jesus, we will inevitably be at odds with parts of our culture. This following Jesus thing is not for the faint of heart. Let's hear from our next section, Acts 21, 15 through 26. Acts 21, 15 through 26. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. 
they've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live among uh, according to their customs. What should we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end, and the offering would be made for each of them. So in this next section, we encounter the power of the gospel to build bridges in the gaps that are created by human beings. And we see how humans seem to resist those bridges by forming divisions along arbitrary lines. So Paul comes before the council of elders in Jerusalem, headed now by James, who is likely the brother of Jesus. And Paul reports on all that God had done on his journeys in, in Gentile-occupied land and, and how Jews and non-Jews alike had converted, had come to place their faith in Jesus. People from all over Asia and Macedonia and Greece. And the council rejoices. They think it's fantastic. At least they think it's great for those people in those other countries. But in Jerusalem, there were some rumors going around that Paul was teaching against the laws of Moses and against the customs of the Jewish people. Now, the rumors were completely untrue, but you could look at this scenario from Paul's perspective and you could make a case that he should have been completely frustrated. He'd given years of his life, faced near-death experiences and angry mobs on multiple occasions simply for preaching in Gentile territories. Paul was a hero, man. I mean, he comes now to Jerusalem, supposedly kind of the heart of the church where Pentecost hit, where the Spirit was first poured out, and he's met with hostility there by, by fellow Christians. He would have every right to just shake the dust off his feet and to never come back. But instead, Paul and the elders come up with a plan so that he could show his loyalty to Jesus and to his fellow Jewish Christians. Now, why would Paul take the time and effort to do that? He's innocent after all. He becomes all things to all people because he is aware of much grace it required Jesus to rescue him. After all, before his conversion, Paul was a horrible man who persecuted the church. He himself was so zealous against the Christians. He had just been shown hospitality by Philip. Remember in, in the last section, Philip was a friend and close colleague of Stephen who was stoned to death. And when he was stoned to death, Paul was there and he was complicit. He was in agreement with Stephen being stoned. So I think that Paul has this deep sense of gratitude and when we are aware of the grace needed to save us, boy, it unlocks a, a, a whole vault, a whole well of gratitude and grace for other people. Let us never forget 
how much grace it required for Jesus to save us. So Paul models this holy deference to others, and he does it for the sake of unity. He never compromises the gospel, he never compromises the truth, but he lays aside his rights for the good of other people. Does that sound familiar? It sounds just like Jesus. We are still in the season of Christmas here on January 3rd, and it would be a huge oversight to fail to mention the Incarnation. I mean, if ever there was a model for humbling ourselves and meeting people on common ground, it is the story of God becoming human. Note that God becoming human wasn't a sin, and it wasn't a compromise to his character or to his identity, but it was a letting go of his rights and his powers. And in the same way, we want to meet people where they are by serving and letting go of our privilege and even our comfort. But that doesn't mean that we compromise our integrity or our ethics. Paul agrees to take this Jewish vow of purity because, I mean, he's already Jewish, ethnically Jewish. His background was Jewish. He was a Pharisee. And he has no problem with Jewish followers of Jesus who also practice the Jewish customs and styles of worship. But at the same time, he stands firmly against people who are requiring other non-Jewish folks to become Jewish before they become Christian. So we might think hard about this in our own context. Like, should people have to become Republicans or Democrats before they can become good Christians? I hope that sounds as ridiculous to you as it does to me when those notions even just came out of my mouth. And yet, for many in our nation and many nations, it's sort of a litmus test for orthodoxy. What other cultural barriers do we put up for people that get in the way of their seeing Jesus in us? You know, Jesus already calls everyone to a high standard. He calls us to a high standard in how we use our money, in how we use our power. He already has high standards for uh, our sexuality and how we treat each other and how we relate to God. Woe to us if we add even more barriers because of our petty cultural or political or social conventions. How has Jesus met you with his love and his hope in a place of your own humility? How did he meet you? And how might the Spirit be asking you to give up privilege or comfort in order to meet others where they're at for the sake of the gospel? All right, let's hear this third section of the chapter, Acts 21, 27 through 36. Acts 21, 27 through 36. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had pre previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. 
And when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Get rid of him! There is so much to say about this third section, and I'm just going to have to bring this to a close. I can't say it all. Thankfully, a lot of it has to do with next week's sermon in, in Acts 22. And to bring this to a close, I want to make just two observations. First, the church is fighting in public in this section of the scripture, and it's a bad look. You know, like any family system, the church is going to have groups and denominations that differ with each other on points of doctrine and points of practice. But the place for those discussions and even heated debates is not the public square. It's behind closed doors. It's not by lobbing snark bombs on social media or by running away from fellowship. It's just the opposite. It's to lean into relationship to talk to one another and to, to go to the scriptures together and to look together and maybe to agree to disagree and still come to the common table. So in this passage, when the Roman Empire has to break up your mob violence, among Christians, something has gone horribly wrong. Or in a contemporary setting, when government investigators have to uncover scandal because we aren't transparent and accountable, the witness of the gospel suffers. But the second and most profound message that I see in this chapter is the suffering of God. On the surface, we read that it is Paul who will suffer. It is Paul who will get falsely accused and beaten and taken into custody. And no doubt, that's exactly how it happened. But the Spirit is with him. God will suffer with him. You know, Paul has choices on his journey. He could have heeded some of the, the warnings and not gone to Jerusalem. He would have a different life. We probably wouldn't have this story the way we have it. Who knows what the consequences would have been. But this I don't doubt. God would have been with Paul. And isn't that part of salvation? That God is with us? So often we speak of salvation as if it's some sort of like external transaction where God pays for our sin so that we can have life. But it seems to me that the transformation we see in scripture and in real life is not merely because of Jesus's death or even the hope that we have in his resurrection. But part of the gospel is that God is now with every baptized follower of Jesus in the person and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. We know from other parts of the New Testament that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, that we can bring joy to the Holy Spirit through our actions. We, we read that we can bring um, suppression or we can squelch the Spirit because of our attitudes or because of our lack of faith. But if we're truly temples of the Holy Spirit, as has been said repeated times in the New Testament, if we house the Holy is it not also true that God is actually with us even in our suffering? And is it not also the case that he experiences it with us? 
And when he promises to make all things new, it's so much more than a theory. It's a promise that he is invested in to experience our pain that we might experience untold joy with him. Our calling to follow Jesus will likely involve suffering. I mean, that's just part of being alive long enough. It's just human. But the good news is not only does God journey with us in our suffering, but he will redeem it and lead us to a new creation where every tear is wiped away and death is no more. That is fantastic news. I am so thankful for a God who is with us and who is not afraid to suffer with us.